0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. Why have countries such as Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan transitioned to democracy as their economies grew, whereas China, Vietnam, and Cambodia did not? That's the question at the heart of Joseph Wong's new book. It's called From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. Co-authored with Dan Slater, Professor Wong teaches political science and is the Roz and Ralph Halbert Professor of Innovation at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And he joins us now. Joe, good to have you back in that
1: chair. Terrific. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: I want to start with this. This book was 10 years in the making. Mm -hmm. How come?
1: Well, it began around... About 10 years ago, Dan and I um, met for the first time, and he was presenting a paper on strong state democratization and the prospects of democracy in places like Singapore and Malaysia. Strong states. Strong states. And I was writing a paper on Taiwan uh, and South Korea. And the two of us met at a conference. We had known of each other for years. um, And we decided to start working together on this. And we wrote a paper, actually, the first paper, version of this, uh, which we published in 2013. Uh, We wrote in a cafe in Madison, Wisconsin over one weekend. And we thought, we actually wrote 18,000 words. Why Madison, Wisconsin? Well, that's where we both went to school. I did my PhD there. He did his undergrad there. And we thought that would be a great place to do this. And uh, it was like, you know, sort of like we had our laptop set up in a cafe, like Battleship that game. (laughs) And we ended up writing 18,000 words in one weekend. And we thought, there might be something here. And so about a year after that, uh, after the article came out, Princeton University Press came on board and asked if we wanted to write a book version uh, of the article. And, uh, and that's when we set out to do it. And it took 10 years because, frankly, the region was just changing so much. You know, when we had first planned to have the book go to the press about five years ago, um, you know, China looked very different than it does today. Uh, Myanmar was still under the rule of a a democratically elected Aung San Suu Kyi Um, and I think in many ways our conclusions would have been very different had the book come out five years before so it took a while for us to just keep pace with the kind of transformations that are occurring in the region
0: and maybe ultimately a good thing that it did take as long as it did because you might have written a different book five years ago
1: I think so and I think the timing frankly couldn't be better I mean the debate right now and the showdown between authoritarianism and democracy is a debate that is raging and the consequences couldn't be you know more serious than they are now so it's it's a good time for the book to come out
0: well let's compare and contrast then, because you, you do tell us in the book that that as countries move towards democracy mm-hmm. some of them start in positions of strength yeah. some of them start in positions of weakness ultimately they can get to the same place
1: mm-hmm.
0: what's the difference between whether you start as a strong country or a weak country
1: Well, the the basic argument of the book is that, at least in the Asia region, um, and we have found similar patterns in other parts of the world and at different times as well, um, that when you have a strong state undergirded by strong state institutions, a record of economic development, and importantly, a strong political party, that transitions that are initiated by those kinds of regimes and under those conditions actually lead to more stable democratic transitions, more resilient democracies over the longer term.
0: What's the best example, in your view, of that?
1: The best example, um, and what really features centrally in the book, is the case of Taiwan. Um, If we go back and um, you look at the history of Taiwan's political development, this was a a regime in the 1970s and early 1980s that by any measure was um, one of the most autocratic and efficiently autocratic regimes around. And then in the mid-1980s, the opposition movement begins to foment and gain some strength. And in 1986, you have opposition leaders forming a political party called the Democratic Progressive Party, the, the DPP. And it was formed illegally, actually, because Taiwan was still under martial law. And at that moment, most observers around the world who you know, watched Taiwan politics assumed that the incumbent regime, the KMT or the Kuomintang, would do what all autocratic regimes do when an opposition starts to form, which is to crack them. crush down. them. Right, to crush mm-hmm. them. And this is what they had done for decades mm-hmm. uh, and had done, you know, from the point of view of an autocrat, done very, very effectively. But what we actually see is the regime um, standing down. And a year later, martial law being lifted, Uh, and the introduction of elections in the early 1990s, and the first uh, full and free and fair presidential elections in 1996, and so we begin to see a transition to democracy. What was puzzling and what is at the core of this book then is why would a regime concede democracy, as the KMT did in the 1980s and late 1980s into the 1990s? Why would a regime concede democracy when it was so strong? And What's the answer? The argument that we make in the book is that when regimes can see on the horizon darker clouds looming, that is to say they're receiving signals that they've passed their apex of power, but they're still very powerful, they're credible, they have a credible track record of economic development, under those conditions, those regimes that are confident, confident that if they were to have elections, they would win, confident that if they were to usher in democracy, the political economy would remain stable under those conditions strong parties strong state regimes can concede democracy and concede a very stable democratic transition
0: the flip side of your argument though is uh, well let's go back 40 years for Dan Marcos in the Philippines yeah I mean he thought that's where he was right he called an election didn't work out that's right that's so right. Th- th- I mean that's potentially one argument for why a lot of places will not risk the way you've just described
1: yeah, and so th- that's right. And the Marcos story, I think, is really important. In fact, we begin the book in a, in a very kind of simple narrative form about what we see as a democracy through weakness scenario versus, mm-hmm. say, what we argue as a democracy through strength scenario. And the Marcos example is a perfect example of a regime that had become so weakened, right, that had passed its best before date, if you will, uh, and such that by the time that Marcos initiates any form of political liberalization, it becomes very clear that actually the regime is so thoroughly delegitimated that he really has only one option, which is to flee the country. And this is, this is what we mean by democracy through weakness, a democracy that ultimately emerges from the ashes of a collapsed autocratic regime, um, but one that is ultimately, and certainly history has, I think, demonstrated, that those kinds of transitions actually result in very unstable democratic transitions. It and yet, results. who's the head of Philippines today? That's right, that's right. Well, this is, you His know, kid. this is, that's right. I mean, this <laughs> is, electoral politics does, I mean, electoral politics are electoral politics. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you will see, um, you will see in many cases as well, a kind of authoritarian nostalgia. And so it's not entirely surprising. Um, and again, I think that in many ways that just demonstrates the kind of you know, the quality of democracy that you want to see ensue. And if you compare that, for instance, with what we see in Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea, those are really enviable democracies, Mm -hmm. right, on objective measures, on democracy indices and so forth. These are places that are stable political orders in which we've also seen continued, you know, economic prosperity.
0: What do you think the special sauce is in those cases that Mm -hmm. you just mentioned, which is apparently absent from other places which have yet to figure it out?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, in the book, we have uh, 12 cases that we look at, and uh, we divide them into four clusters of cases. And the examples of Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan are what we call the developmental statist cluster. And these are a a distinctive group of political economies in the sense that they are uh, high-growth economies in the post-war period. Um, They're undergirded by what many refer to as a developmental state. So you have a bureaucracy that is very strong, very capable, uh, very intent on growing their economies. These are political economies that have done a good job in reducing poverty, uh, in promoting, you know, more rather than less inclusive uh, economic development. And at the helm are uh, strong political parties, right, and a strong... Uh, ruling regime during the autocratic period. And so this really sets the stage then for a regime, again, that sees these signals of uh, darker clouds on the horizon, you know, electoral signals, maybe the rise in contentious politics and so forth. They see that they are no longer, you know, their hold on power is no longer unassailable, and they say, preemptively and strategically, this would be the right time to concede democracy. Um, but this is a unique group of cases because, you know, for all of the, all of the reasons I've just stated, you know, high growth, strong states, strong parties.
0: Well, you've led me nicely to where I want to go next, which Mm -hmm. is China. Mm -hmm. And that is, you've basically put out a list there of all the things that China has, strong Mm -hmm. bureaucracy, strong institutions. They've done uh, an incredible job reducing poverty for hundreds of millions of people, a strong regime. And yet... The final thing on that checklist and therefore a preparedness or a willingness to take a risk on democracy that one clearly isn't there for China yet why not
1: yeah um, this is a question I think that perplexes a lot of people Um, and indeed when we were writing the book you know China is such an important case and we wanted to be sure that this was not a book solely about China And the press was very clear as well. Princeton University Press, which published it, was very clear that they were not necessarily interested in a book solely about China. So China was going to be one of 12 cases, but it's such an important case. It's such an outsized case um, in every respect. And we'd originally thought we'd write one chapter on China, but as you can imagine, it's such a big case. Mm -hmm. The history is just so long, The, the the ups and downs and so forth are so complicated, we couldn't do that. And so we decided to write one chapter, which took us uh, to 1989, which is important, right? Because this was a moment in June of 1989 when many people thought this was an opportunity for the regime to democratize. right? Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. And that this was in many ways, for those who are proponents of democracy, that this was a lost opportunity. Mm. And the argument we make in the book is that It was, indeed, a lost opportunity, but it wasn't the most ideal set of circumstances for a democracy through strength scenario to unfold. Because when we look back, actually, at the regime in 1989, it was not a particularly strong regime. It was rife with elite conflict and elite split. China really experiences its economic takeoff after the early 1990s, so China was still relatively relatively poor at that time. Um, and, you know, it was only about half a generation removed from the political chaos of the Cultural Revolution, right? So this was not a regime that was in any position to concede democracy through strength.
0: Not then, but not today Not then, is. but
1: today, and so that's where we end off on the book, right, is, is, uh, is, is the argument or the suggestion that if China were to democratize today, if the Chinese Communist Party were to initiate, for instance, a democratic transition, um, that it, it would uh, fulfill all the criteria of a democracy through strength scenario. Um, that it's inconceivable that if the CCP, at least in our view, if the CCP were to initiate free and fair elections that there would be any viable challengers that could unseat the CCP from power. So you know, there's a way in which one can make the argument actually that democracy and democratization is incentive compatible with these regimes. It makes sense. It's, it, it's, with, it's in their self-interest mm. to democratize from a position of strength. And so China is, a, is what we call a prime candidate for precisely this kind of political transformation to occur. Which people have been saying for three or four decades. People have been saying for three or four decades, but I think that we're, we're, we're in, in many ways, I think we're looking in the wrong places. Um, I think, sadly, um, And ultimately erroneously I think we're all looking for democracy to emerge from a collapsed CCP Mm. when you think about and you read and you contemplate what China watchers many China watchers are saying around the world it's to it's this presumption that democracy can only emerge in China if and when the CCP regime collapses Mm -hmm. or if and when the economy collapses. In it other words, neither are about to happen. Neither are about to happen. Frankly, you know, in terms of an you know a collapsed China, um, this would be an awful. From a purely humanitarian point of view, mm. right? We're talking about close to one point five billion people. Um, you know, this would be really calamitous for a lot of people. Its economy collapsing would not only be economically calamitous for one point five billion. It would have. Reverberations around the world like the rest of the world would feel this as well Mm -hmm. So I think in many ways by looking for democracy to emerge in China from only Or the only way in which democracy can emerge is from a collapse regime is actually looking in the wrong places And so as we contemplate this I'm not so sure for three or four decades We've been looking for democracy through strength in China I Mm -hmm. think we've been looking for democracy through collapse in China the opportunity that is before us is to make the argument as we do in the book that actually democratizing from a position of strength to leverage you know, the CCP's extraordinary track record and so forth uh, may actually result in a fairer liberal democracy, and one in which we might even see the CCP remain in power, but as a democratically elected hmm. government.
0: Here's a quote from your book that speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Sheldon, if we can. Strong parties are national parties. This party machinery can be converted and deployed in democratic electoral competition after authoritarian controls are lifted. Although democratic concessions always entail risks, the robustness of a built ruling party infrastructure mitigates those risks. Individual party members might defect to other parties or run as independents under democracy, but the party is virtually certain to live on as an authoritarian successor party when democracy is conceded by an authoritarian regime that is still strong, in effect, echoing what you've just said. Mm-hmm. As, as China looks at the neighborhood that it's in, mm-hmm. what example does it take from what it's seen?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. When, we, when we've talked about this thesis in China, and um, some people may be surprised that you know we've been able to give talks uh, on this topic in China, um, even though it is an argument ultimately about democratizing China, um, it's an argument that is a little different, right? It's not about um, wishing the collapse of the regime. It's instead trying to convince the regime that by creating a more fair liberal democratic system, it's actually incentive compatible. It actually serves the interests of the ruling party. Mm -hmm. And we point to examples like Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Japan, Uh, as we also argue in the book a place like indonesia which is a large large country not unlike china with you know um separatist um impulses on the periphery and so forth and we point to those examples where you can introduce democracy and yet the regime stays or the incumbent party stays relevant if not actually staying in power unfortunately i think in china oftentimes um, they'll look westward and they'll point to the former soviet union And they'll say, no, actually, the lessons we learn uh, from our neighborhood is that when you democratize, you actually unleash political chaos and you create political economic instability and you derail all of the developmental ambitions that the regime might have. I think that's the wrong lesson to take. And we have suggested to our colleagues, our friends, our interlocutors in China, that Actually, the Soviet example or the collapse of the former Soviet Union is a great example, actually, of a regime that simply waited too long. Mm -hmm. That by the time Glasnost and Perestroika were unleashed, it wasn't Perestroika and Glasnost that caused the regime to collapse. Rather, they just simply revealed the internal rot that had already besought the regime and accelerated, in many ways, the collapse of the regime. So the lesson, actually, to be learned from that neighbor is don't wait too long. Right? Democratize when you are in a position of strength, when you have what we call victory confidence and stability confidence, the confidence that if you were to democratize, it would not necessarily spell the end of the regime or it would not spell the end of the ruling party. And it may in fact actually create even more stability so that the kind of political economic ambitions uh, of the Chinese government can actually be fulfilled over the longer term.
0: When you have these conversations with your academic colleagues in China, mm-hmm. do they understand where they are on the continuum of history right now? And and do they sort of, do they take your point that, yes, we should probably tell the political leaders in the country not to wait too long, otherwise yeah. you look more like the Soviet Union rather than Taiwan, Japan, South Korea?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting observation because, as I say, We've been quite welcome to make this argument in China. And so it's not seen as, uh, as an offensive argument or by any stretch. And many will concede that the logic of our argument makes a great deal of sense. Um, and they will say in private, you know, this, this is a very compelling argument. And I think this is something the regime ought to contemplate. Are they? Well, the challenge is, is that ultimately it's still a risk. Right. And as we point out, and as you noted in the quote that you just read, that, that preemptively conceding democracy always entails risks, right? Um, James Scott, uh, uh, a very prolific uh, political scientist and anthropologist once referred to this as, you know, democracy ushering, quote, unquote, the inconvenience of losing. There's the <laughs> chance that you might lose, right? And that's the whole point of inconvenience democracy. Inconvenience of losing. The inconvenience of losing. And that's the whole point of democracy. And so when push comes to shove, you know, people, um, you know, it's a theory about how political elites and political parties might behave. But in reality, these are people who are weighing the risks and benefits of making such a decision. Mm. And so it's not quite as, as, as easy as one might um, argue in a more sort of theoretical piece as we do in this book. So um, I think that people have been receptive to the argument. Um, but, you know, as we also lay out in the very end of the book, It seems very unlikely that under the current Xi Jinping government that any such notion would really be seriously entertained.
0: Sure, but the status quo is a risk as well. There's no such thing as a risk-free scenario out there. And if they hang on too long and it becomes sclerotic like the Soviet
1: Union, they could end up in the same place. This is exactly the point that we often try to make. And, and, And one of the reasons why we suggest that the CCP actually is a prime candidate, the Chinese Communist Party, is a prime candidate for democracy through strength is because when you do look on the horizon, um, I think you would either have to have your head in the sand or I think you'd have to be um, terribly naive to not see those dark clouds, right? There are economic headwinds uh, in the future. There is a geopolitical rivalry um, that at times may seem very energizing for the body politic, but at times it's very taxing, right? So there are... Darker clouds on the horizon, there are the kinds of signals that autocratic regimes should be able to see. And if they so choose, um, can see the value of conceding democracy from a position, in the case of the CCP, quite extraordinary strength. Mm. Now, your book focuses on Asia.
0: Mm -hmm. And you've you've laid in place some some theories and arguments for why it is the way it is in Asia. Mm Do you know if that works for every other region of the world as well? In other words, could you take that template and put it on Latin America or Africa and say principles are just the same there?
1: Well, I think the logic is the same. And and we have published an article um, with colleagues who study Africa and Europe. Um, So we published a piece with Rachel Riedel and Daniel Ziblatt um, uh, looking at this argument of democracy through strength or authoritarian-led democratization in West Africa, East and Southeast Asia, and in England uh, in an earlier period. And so the theory travels across time and space. Um, The conditions may not always be as fortuitous. And again, that's why we have uh, what we call the developmental status cluster as being really the paradigmatic or the paragon of the logic that we're talking about here. But the idea that a regime might concede democracy from a position of strength i don't think um uh you know could not travel theoretically across different uh, time and places
0: i want to in our remaining moments here tap into your most fantastic geopolitical fantasies here okay, okay. <laughs> let's imagine a world yep. where china takes these steps towards democracy and mm-hmm. so does vietnam mm-hmm. and myanmar mm-hmm. and cambodia Let's imagine Asia as a much more democratic place in the future than it is today. Mm -hmm. What kind of a world are we living in then?
1: Well, look, I think, first of all, um, a country the size uh, of China and as complex and complicated as China, we should expect that democratic transition, which ultimately, I think, would lead to... uh, uh, a more liberal political order, is, is nonetheless going to face challenges. And so um, it's not automatic. It's certainly not a process that occurs overnight. And as we have seen, you know, for every two steps forward, we see in the march towards democracy, there's oftentimes a step back. Mm. And people have noted this in terms of democratic backsliding and so we'd forth. we'd be helpful. Well, I think We'd there, want to encourage that. I think there'd be an opportunity for us to also be patient, mm-hmm. right, uh, and to be supportive when asked, um, of this kind of transformation, to to temper our expectations, right, that a transition uh, such as this, and as monumental as this, uh, would take some time, and that there might be some hiccups along the way. But ultimately, what we would see, I think, is a real convergence of the kind of political economic values um, that are not Western, right, but that are, in fact, quite universal. And that's one of the um, key points of the book, and we end the, the book uh, in which we talk about democracy being a universal value, right? Um, that this is something that is not uh, solely uh, the purview of the East or the West, but rather um, we have certainly not seen any evidence that anybody in the world prefers to um, live under the threat of uh, repressive autocracy mm-hmm. over um, more freedom and so forth. But that nonetheless, you know, that, that, that this convergence of values has to be supported by uh, an international community that supports peace, prosperity, uh, and continued development. And so the very last part of the book says that while democracy is a universal value, it's not the ultimate one. The ultimate value is one in which we have people... Um, who enjoy the benefits of peace, prosperity, inclusive economic growth, and so forth. And the promise of democracy, frankly, relies on the continued deliverance of that. So while we may see a more peaceful, a less tense geopolitical community, it does not absolve us Mm. of really working on the challenges that allows democracies to endure. And that's about a peaceful coexistence. It's about continued economic prosperity and shared and inclusive growth. That's the big challenge before us.
0: I look forward to reading the sequel in 25 years when all of that happens. <laughs> Terrific, thank you. <laughs> from Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia, along with Dan Slater, Joseph Wong, the author. Thanks so much, Joe.
1: Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.